Well, Audrey. Here we are, face-to-face. -face. <laughs> this is Steve Hargadon, and I'm with Audrey Waters, and we're actually doing another face-to-face -face live recording. Of course, the quality of the sound is going to be our expense. Maybe. Hello, Skype. Skype might, might not offer the best, <laughs> the best alternative either. We're in San Francisco at the Digital Media and Learning Conference. Um, and this has been a really fun event. I'm sure some of it's going to come up today as we talk about your stories. Um, one of the themes that I feel like we're hearing at the conference is education outside of school. Yes, and we've talked we talk a lot about that, I think, at least insofar, we've talked a lot about libraries as being an alternative uh, place for making, hacking, um, any sort of, and the very um, practices are grounded in the community as well. Yes, and we got to meet Dale Doherty. We did. Which was a pleasure. I hope, Dale, you're listening. Or somebody's <laughs> listening who knows Dale. Speaking well of him. Um, so tell us about, uh, tell me about uh, Ryan Seashore and Code Now and kind of the, the principle here. Well, um, I've, I've, uh, I've written about Ryan's um, nonprofit before and uh, I circled back around to talk to him as part of my research that I'm doing for Mozilla in part because I, um, I know that he's actually working, he's working with um, sort of disadvantaged populations in Washington, D.C., uh, high school students. And I know he's one of those folks who's really on the ground addressing the, the, the issue of how do we get kids to learn programming. Um, and I was curious about a, a switch in his, um, sort of the tools that he has in his, at his disposal that he's added a new, a new tool to his repertoire, um, a startup called Treehouse, which offers online HTML classes. So it was just a good opportunity for me to sort of talk with Ryan again and see sort of what it was, why he'd chosen to use Treehouse, and um, if there was anything I sort of gleaned from him about how, um, how best, if, if Mozilla decides to sort of build a tool to help people learn HTML, um, you know, what, what, what Ryan's experiences might have to offer. It feels like this is actually kind of a critical story because the goal is not to get a certain distance in the teaching at the beginning but to create a platform of learning and engagement that then extends beyond that initial setup. Yeah. So the Treehouse piece is about how you continue to communicate afterwards, right? Right, I mean, and I think that that's the really important, that was sort of my, one of my key takeaways um, from, from talking to Ryan, is sort of you know, lowering the barrier to, barrier to entry so that kids who really feel, I mean, in this case in particular, it feels though a lot of those kids have, they often don't even have a computer. They feel as though math is hard, science is beyond them, and it's sort of, they can't even imagine a future self that is a software engineer or anyone with these sort of skills. So it's about lowering the barrier to entry, but then absolutely creating a whole sustainable social piece around that, that sort of continuing online learning when they're not in a face-to-face -face workshop, but also giving them opportunities for peer feedback, for mentorship, and it's sort of, it's more than just a tool. Well, this is on a lot of people's minds, right? This question of how do you sustain a relationship, a mentor relationship, if it's virtual, uh, beyond the traditional school walls, and how do you utilize the social tools that we're seeing for students without them sort of revolting and saying, you know, I don't want to be placed in this box. Right. Uh, is he on the right track, do you think? I think so, and I think that he's, you know, he's also um, recognizing the ways in which um, students can sort of uh, demonstrate to the other people within the group but also to sort of the outside world that they are um, that they are that they have these skills that they're learning things and they can sort of showcase their their projects and sort of well, this is another theme from the from the DML but have some sort of badging or recognition system that they that they that they do have the skill set we are going to get to badging <laughs> we are going to get to <laughs> so we've covered badging <laughs> mentors and social networking all in one story um, okay so uh, one of your top ed tech trends for 2011 mm -hmm. was text messaging uh, and the question you asked was, is this a feature or a business? Yeah. Right? And so this is the rubber sort of um, meaning the road here uh, with these startups, which is how are they going to make money? And what has Snap app, Snap School done? Well, I, I think that, you know, I think that this is, this is a question that not just these text messaging startups. This is sort of the flip side of the ways in which a lot of these new startups are running lean. They're building sort of 
small pieces. Um, and some interesting, you know, they're working on really interesting and important ideas. That's the text messaging. I mean, this is the, you know, this is sort of the intersection of mobile. Um, it's bridging school and home. It's a device. It's a, you know, it's a taps into a devices that, that students have. But how do you, you know, how do you make, how do you sort of pay your bills when you're building something that isn't really quite a small tool that you can't really charge teachers for, and you probably can't get districts to 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 buy in, or certainly not not enough to sort of make you know make a substantial amount of money. But so Snap School Snap School's added a new feature, which I thought was pretty interesting. That they recognize they were initially a text messaging app for communicating between uh, school and home. So a teacher could send out messages to parents of the students in their class saying, you know, here's the homework assignment for the night or um, that's sort of a, a, a messaging service that's easy for teachers to use and to communicate with, with parents. Um, and they had this realization that it's not just about better communication between school and home, but that actually some parents don't know sort of what to do with that information. So there's math homework and you know your child should be doing the math homework, but you, you can't help them for a number of reasons. Perhaps you've forgotten, you know, I, if, you know, I mean, I had this experience with my son. Like, he had to, you know, grasp a quadratic equation, and I, I, <laughs> I had no idea. I had no idea how to help him. And so SNAP School started sending a, it's a new service. It's separate for now from, the, from what's um, the teachers um, to parents communication piece, but it's a weekly newsletter to give parents some tips on teaching math at the um, it's, it's early elementary level. I think it's a nice idea. Sort of this is this is the concept. Here's how you t here's how to teach it. Here's some more resources if um, if your child gets stuck or if they're super interested. I thought it was a, a nice service. Now I don't know if it's any more of a business than a text messaging startup, but I thought it was it was a sort of interesting addition to their repertoire. Yeah, I wanted to give them ten points for the try. Yeah. Didn't hit the nail on the head for me. And I think they know that actually. And um, but I but uh, and I, th I don't know if they can sort of bring it all together into a more um, into a more interesting right. thing. Um. I like the creativity. The thought that occurred to me, if you're listening, <laughs> was the, uh, sort of the disruptive innovation theory, which is find the place where somebody's not being served. And quite honestly, the be your child's homework hero wasn't it for me. <laughs> right? if, I'm, if I don't understand the math or how to graph the quadratic equation, I'm going to go to Google. And I'm, if I'm already proactive enough to do that, I'm likely to go there. And because the timing of those email messages right. and the material isn't necessarily going to be on, you know, correlated, I thought, well, you know, this probably wouldn't, it would just this be one more piece of email that I would save and never look at or something like that. Yeah. But I love the idea. Yeah. You know, move beyond. And then, and I would want to play with this idea of how do you move beyond to, to something that's really not served. Right. And, and for me, you know, it's actually less about the homework than it is about knowing what's going on in the classroom. I would love to just have more of a sense of what actually took place. Well, and I, I think it would be great too to have conversations that weren't. I mean, this is sort of what's frustrating about homework-related conversations. Oftentimes, is that they get really frustrating. But you know, parents find that they are not able to um, to help their kids. Mitch Kapoor actually kind of addressed this in the session well, today. Well, this is this is this other interesting piece as well. Um, uh, that that you know, we've Mitch uh, Mitch Kapoor is a um, uh, an investor, and he's the one who invests a lot in in education technology. And one of the things that Mitch thinks about is not just um, is social impact. And he's often, you know, he talks a lot about ways in which products that are sold to parents might be um, actually exacerbating the problem rather than fixing the problem, right? Because only the, you know, only if, although it's, I think it's $11 a year for SNAP school, but even so, um, only those parents who can actually afford um, or who are willing to pay um, get to take advantage of this service. So is it, is it actually making a big difference. Yeah, I was trying to remember exactly what Mitch said today because I, that really resonated with me. I said, okay, that's a dilemma. Mm -hmm. no, nobody's intentionally creating that dilemma, but it's right. a little bit of a dilemma. 
but also I got the sense from him that they had sort of decided they were going to not really go into areas where they couldn't make a sale because mm -hmm. there just isn't any money. So you think, okay, well, then that's only going to really be served by people who have a commitment mm -hmm. and who have extra money. And that's kind of too bad that the ecosystem, that we're recognizing the ecosystem as such that it's really hard to get a good product in because of the way products are bought. Right. At the, at the, you mean in schools? In, in schools. Yeah. I, think, I mean, I think this is a... I think this is something that, um, I mean, uh, and uh, uh, you know, it's not just Snap School, but it's a number of startups like that that have uh, an interesting product that is um, that they could never afford to have a sort of massive sales force that it takes to sort of convince a district or, or even necessarily a school to sort of buy their buy their product. Seems like we need a new model. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, what's his name? Justin Reich, uh, Harvard doctoral student, uh, produces a research report. Uh, the first wow for me was that he actually indicated that 40% of teachers say they're using blogs or wikis. Can that be true? Well, I think that this was one of the, the uh, oh, he didn't say that. I think that that's from, from another study. But I think that, oh, that, right. that, that, um, but I think that this is, this is one of the problems of these self anything that's self-reported, and I think that this is why his research, one of the reasons why his research was particularly interesting to me is it's very easy, particularly if you're being asked a question which you know the answer is yes, that you know the right thing to do is sort of be a savvy social media user. Someone says, do you use Twitter? You're like, oh, of course I use Twitter. It's a bit like when your dentist asks you if you floss your teeth. It's like, <laughs> yes, of course I do. But like, you don't, right? <laughs> I mean, it's not. <laughs> okay, so let's, so let's get to his actual statistics right. then. Right, so he says just 1% were collaborative. That didn't bother me, and I'll tell you why. Most people forget the fact that Wiki actually operates at sort of three levels, mm -hmm. and one is just as a publishing tool, yes. and the second is as a multiple-person publishing tool that's non-collaborative, right. and then the third is this kind of high-level collaboration, which actually is really hard. It's not. It's not like that's easy. Well, I think. I mean, I think that, that I think that he would he would agree, and this is a lot of the things that. Um, when I asked him some more about this, is that he made that exactly that point? Is that collaboration is really a difficult thing, and, and particularly um, and collaboration is difficult sort of among educators. But when you add sort of students to the mix too, it's 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 not something. It's sort of you know easier said than done. Um, and the other piece that he said, one of the things was the number of wikis that were sort of abandoned, that were sort of created and then never updated again. And you know, I mean the. the that's actually, there's actually that's a there's feature, a, not a bug. Well, I was going to say there's actually a very low threshold to creating a wiki, and there's a failure. The failure of a wiki isn't sort of a. It's not really that big of a deal. Um, so, the, I mean, I think his other his other observations though about a, um, a, a digital divide, a Web 2.0 sort of digital divide, I thought were quite quite interesting and things you know things to think about in terms of sort of who is actually. Um, you know what 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 kinds of schools are actually taking advantage of these tools? Yeah, I, I was intrigued because in part it helped me to realize I'm not using wikis that much anymore. Well, what I note, I I am a I am a wiki user, um, and I noticed Google you know Google changed their toolbar recently at the top of all of their services now. It's like the perma the perma the perma bar, and I'm already sad that Reader isn't a featured. Clearly, Google doesn't really feature um, Google Reader anymore, but Sites isn't even listed in the drop-down menu. Really? So. Interesting. Well, our patterns are changing. Yes. Um, be interesting to drill down on whether that's good or bad or indifferent. But I was intrigued that I've really shifted away from wiki use, um, and I'm not. I have to think about why. Yeah. But I think in part because that neutral point of view. Um, is not actually necessarily the most productive way to do collaborative work. Mm -hmm. Conversation ends up being, for me, a more collaborative tool. Well, I, I mean, I have to wonder too if that if that is one of the reasons why wikis um, that we are we're sort of hashing things out in other venues. And I think we'd say you know hashing things out in the margin in sort of on Twitter and hashing things out in the margins of Google Doc, for example, too. Did he make recommendations? Um, he has some recommendations on his on his site. I, I think for for 
for teachers sort of um, I mean I should say they weren't actually part of part of his part of his research. But I think that he wants, you know, I mean I think he's not saying sort of abandon abandon ship or abandon wikis. Well, my rec my recollection was that he felt like we need to do more training on how to use the tools pedagogically. Right. I think that that I mean I think that that's Sometimes I think we get so obsessed about um, teachers mastering the skills, the technological skills, that we actually forget sort of the the larger pieces in which these things are implemented. My worry is it's a little bit like the blind leading the blind. I mean, it, you know, until you've used wikis, I mean, how are you actually going to understand their potential educational value? There are going to be these big gaps as people, you know, begin to practice. And I think more more than anything, it's right now it's peer informed mm -hmm. that an educator uses a tool like this and then through these networks is communicating with other educators as to their pedagogical value yeah. and how they're actually putting them into the curriculum. Um, he's made this argument before about the digital divide. Right. Clearly it's again it's this same thing maybe Mitch was talking about, this concern about Right. Who gets to use you know, who sort of who gets to use these tools or sort of how are these tools you know, how are these tools being used in different in different settings? And, you know, if we're going to we're going to sort of um, identify certain skills as you know, quote, 21st century skills and either collaborate, you know, collaboration, understanding, media literacy, those sorts of things at their best, wikis do well. Um, so what are the implications when it's clear that, you know, um, disadvantaged schools don't tend to use, use these tools? And I, I, I would imagine, you know, wikis are just one example of those tools that just aren't getting taken advantage of. Right. And, and there's also some balance there. As I recall, he talks about the fact that most classes don't have open discussion <laughs> anyway. So well, you've right. got to put this in context. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, it's not as though, right, it's not as though the offline, uh, offline is such a collaborative space either. So uh, again, I feel as though the, this interview series is really about Audrey Waters with Steve Hargan doing his best <laughs> to keep up. But I got to tell you, the book renter story kind of taxes my brain capacity. It's it's a, a level of sophistication around the delivery of materials that I, I actually I'm not sure I even really want to fully understand. But you seem to think there's really good value here by virtue of kind of exposing everybody to a much more open understanding of what the material is and what it costs and who's providing it. Yeah, the book, the, so the book renter, which has um, been around for a number of years at the textbook rental company, um, they've realized sort of as they've, and they, I should say their textbook rental company that a couple years ago realized that they could work with the local or with the campus bookstores to sort of be their technology back end. Um, instead, of, um, instead of something like Chegg, for example, which is another textbook rental company that students go to um, on the web, Book Renter decided to sort of woo school or woo the campus bookstore and, and provide them with the technology. And I think the light bulb went on to, to Book Renter that perhaps they could provide more of a technology solution to universities, not just about textbook rentals or textbook distribution, but about digital content across the board. And so they've spun out a new company called Rafter that offers this sort of, um, the, you know, so that it will offer schools help with getting, getting a handle on, on, on digital content distribution, and that's sort of buying books, ordering books, Copyright license, you know, copyright licensing issues when it comes to, um, you know, when it comes to sort of securing different rights for materials. Um, but as part of their launch, they released what I think is a really interesting tool. Um, it's called uh, Rafter Discover, and this is really sort of this. We've talked about this before. This side-by-side -side price comparison, so that professors really aren't in so much in the dark when they make their textbook decisions. Do professors make any money on textbook sales? If they've written the textbook? No, if just by virtue of the fact they're recommending. I mean, they're they're no. not financially involved in any no. way. But you're saying they're in the dark because they don't really understand the implications for the student necessarily of the cost of what they're well, putting I, I, in their I, I mean, some, so it sort of depends. Like the different departments have different policies. Some departments say, you know, for if for all of the sections that are teaching interests to psychology, you will use this tech. We've decided you will use this textbook. But often, but oftentimes, when it comes to deciding what textbook to use in your class, it's sort of you walk down the hall and you ask your 
you know, the other professor in the psych department, he's like, what textbook are you using? And they're like, uh, you know, they say it. It doesn't book. really matter. Most of the kids are reading the old version anyway, right? <laughs> didn't, we, didn't we learn that? But I think, so I think, and there's, there's not really a discussion. I mean, sure, professors could do a bunch of research about what is the cheapest textbook, which one has the best reviews, which is the most up-to-date, what are the life cycle, you know, how, how often does this textbook get updated, sort of what is the resale value of a textbook. But professors don't do that research. They just sort of pick, pick the textbook. And the and question is, having exposed that data, will they do a better job picking the textbook? Right, and I think the potential, too, if you think again about Rafter making this broader move to offer all sorts of other digital content, not just textbooks, what happens when you can see side by side, by side comparison between the, oh, let's see, Pearson textbook. <laughs> <laughs> the Pearson textbook and a comparable OER resource and perhaps a series of um, other online information. And so you can actually see, sort of compare, not just price, but reviews and your peer, the professor's peers okay. reviewing them. I saw two bright lights here. Okay. One was not actually the professor's reviews. I wanted the students to be able to review the textbook because my guess is... I think that's why you go to Amazon. Well, right. <laughs> but I also thought that the professors, could we make, would it make sense to have it be visible to the professors, the students' reviews of the textbooks? And, I, and it, that wasn't clear to me if that was going to happen, but I thought that could be a really valuable thing, mm -hmm. you know, more than the anecdotal, but actually thoughtful right. students saying, this textbook's full of mistakes or it was really expensive, it was really hard for me to buy. Yeah. I'd love to see that channel of information right. flow. The other was I kind of am holding out this hope that what's really going on here is the ability to aggregate content into an open textbook, meaning somebody who will deal with the licensing rights because you figure uh, um, one of the difficulties of open source software and of anything open is that when it comes with different rights, it's really hard to put it together. Yes. So is this actually a moment where somebody is saying, we're going to kind of tackle that so that if you see I need this article, this article, this article, and this article, They'll figure out the licensing rights and make it available to the students without you having to manage all of the intellectual rights issues. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know if that's sort of what uh, Rafter has up its sleeve. But, but but I think in terms of the services that they're offering the universities, I know that copyright. Clear, I mean, I was sort of amazed. I had a, I had a chance to talk with the CEO, and I was sort of amazed. He told me an anecdote about um, one university that had actually. Was actually had to secure copy, a professor had to secure copyright access to use their own material in the classroom. And that this, you know, the university had paid a bunch of money for that. And then meanwhile it found that two other faculty had also paid to, act, to get access to the same material. And the library had paid access. So there are, these, you know, there are all these other, all these inefficiencies and, um, or, and or exploitation, <laughs> depending on, um, uh, around just something like securing copyright license, license for campus use. We're going to get to more of the story of people who are making money on places where they maybe shouldn't. <laughs> 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 okay, so I do, I do, uh, I really am hoping that this um, rafter piece ends up being somebody who can manage this because I think that's a great step forward in terms of thinking about using source material mm -hmm. instead of relying on the textbook. And again, we're really talking higher ed here. Right. So any, any benefit to K-12 is probably going to be trickle down or shadow, but at the same time it's a rethinking of how we manage these things. Or the bankruptcy of the publishers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what's extraneous cognitive load and what's germane cognitive <laughs> load? Well, this is um, I, I had a, a wonderful chat this week with uh, Scott Gray, who's run the O'Reilly School of Technology for a long time, and um, he uh, he's he uh, he's been thinking a lot. I mean, partially because he's been teaching programming online for a long time, and what he talks about is sort of you want to make certain things. Um, you sort of want to you want to. I don't even know if I can sort of explain it. <laughs> But you want to sort of make something, you don't want to sort of have the barriers to be too high for the wrong issues so that students actually have to spend a lot of time worrying about the things that they're not, that, that they're really not supposed to be learning. But you do want to have high barriers to, for the things that are like the, the thing that they're supposed to be tackling. And I think when it comes to sort of designing, you know, in sort of instructional design, you don't want to get so caught up with the 
the extraneous stuff. You really want to focus on the core of what's supposed to be um, be learned. Yeah, no, I love the concept. Yeah. And I and I you know immediately thought of uh, really good games because you figure that a that a really good game gives you a cognitive load mm -hmm. that's one that challenges you in the right ways and and the one that gives you a cognitive load that's not germane right. you're going to say forget, forget it forget it exactly right so the um, so I love that and I also recognize that this is sort of at the heart of the rigor um, mm -hmm. debate which is you want kids to have a really rigorous education, right. but it, you want it to be rigorous in ways that challenge them in the right ways and not grunt work, yeah. forms, you know, spreadsheets or Right. Sheets. I mean, I think that there's a difference, you know, I mean, sometimes I think it was one of the things actually we heard John Seeley Brown say here was something about sort of making learning easy, and I don't know if that's the right thing. I think actually learning Well, I can say for sure I don't think <laughs> it's the right thing. Right, like learning is hard and I don't mean I'm challenging not, I'm right I don't mean to bang your head against the wall for hours on end and like painful you know disempowering frustration and I think that that's what Scott's talking about here too you sort of there are things that you want to be able to bang your head about on the wall but sort of in a productive moving forward way and not not the sort of thing that makes you throw your hands up in the air not because you don't sort of understand the concept but because you're stuck in the you know stuck in the mud around actually the interesting you know, the interesting hole you're supposed to be working on. Which is the great argument for self-directed learning. Mm -hmm. I mean, the fear that I think a lot of us have is, uh, well, they're just not going to do anything. But as a, as a homeschool parent, I can tell you, you know you've succeeded when your kid is staying up till midnight working on something that they really care about. And say, so, okay, that's the productive cognitive load. Right. They're engaged and they want to be engaged. Right, right. Well, that was fun. I'm glad you're doing those interviews because it's, I mean, they're sort of a note form. Yeah. So they're not really a narrative, but right. it's, it's fun to read them. And I have a couple of great ones lined up for next week, too. So. Good. <laughs> okay, so I love this virtualized uh, science lab by Late Night Labs. If it weren't so darn expensive. It is. It's really expensive. Um, but on the other hand, running a, like running a wet lab is extraordinarily expensive as well. And sadly, I think that the expense of, of running a lab, it's one of those things that's getting axed. And it's getting axed and at the high schools, and it's getting axed actually on campuses as well. I mean, you actually have to devote an immense amount of physical space to a lab. And then you fill it with expensive equipment. Um, and some of that equipment, of course, is um, you know, things that get broken and tossed out after every, um, every experiment. And then you have to get all of these sort of dangerous, messy chemicals or, um, or sort of biological samples. And so, I mean, it's... You just don't have any E. coli sitting around, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, and I think that, I mean, part of it is sort of fear of, I mean, learning is, learning is messy. And, and I heard super awesome Sylvia speak this week here at DML, and someone asked her what she, why she wanted to make her videos, and she said she loves to destroy things. And I think <laughs> that's the beauty of the lab, right, is it's sort of, it's this sort of creative destruction or destructive creation. I'm not sure which one, both maybe. Um, so it is sad to see the hands-on lab go away, but in the, that is, the, is there something that a virtualized lab can offer? And I, I thought what, this, what the late-night labs folks have built actually it was actually pretty cool and there were sort of unexpected little things that happened as well that you could never or I mean you could I suppose do at your school but then there would be sort of like school would be evacuated <laughs> <laughs> for me there was a real parallel between um, online learning and the online lab meaning there are things that we're discovering about online learning that actually have real inherent mm -hmm. value by virtue of the fact that they're being done online and in this particular case, you can do things you probably couldn't do in a physical lab. Right. There are also things in a physical lab that really don't translate to the virtual, mm -hmm. but it feels like we'll get to that balance. It's really nice to see this being exemplified. And I, you know, and I love, I actually love the idea of having access to it 24-7. I mean, that's, you know. The name is brilliant. The name is brilliant, and just this idea that you, you know, as it stands right now, particularly at the higher ed level, you know, you go to, you have, whatever, three hours of lecture and an hour of lab. And that is your, that is your hour of lab. And it, you know, the sort of Fridays at 9 o'clock in the morning. And this idea of being able to sort of, you could do, once you sort of pay for access, you actually have, you have access 
all of the labs. So you could, you know, you could sort of wake up in the middle of the night and work with E. coli, should you? <laughs> should I, I want to be convinced that there's one of the things I love about the grocery store Trader Joe's is that they have this policy of pricing only a, a percentage markup, so you know it's not what the market will bear. Mm -hmm. One of the concerns I had with this was it felt like it was a what the market could bear you comparing with a yeah. bigger lab. And I, I just want the comfort of knowing that they're not that there's actually a better methodology for the pricing. There really are some costs there. Uh, but again, what you know, I think it was fifty dollars per student right. per semester. And students have to, you know, high, again at higher ed level, you know, if you're if you're taking intro to biology, there's actually usually an an additional fifty dollar lab fee um, for all those beakers that you break. Well, if it turns out <laughs> that the, 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 that's just the price they thought the market could bear, it will well, come down because the market doesn't bear it. Right. Okay, so this Research Works Act, uh, talk about a political hot potato. Indeed. Uh, indeed. Um, but um, the um, it was withdrawn, right? Yeah. Right in saying that, is that the correct well, well, what I mean, what happened in part was that um, the 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 there was sort of a growing boycott of some of the academic journals that were in support of this, and um, when they when they withdrew their support, lo and behold, quickly, you know, so did uh, so did uh, Congressman Daryl Issa. So it's sort of clear. Sort of clear who was calling the shots were the, were the academic publishers. I, mean, I, I want to point fingers and I want to make accusations, but the reality is um, these are probably complex contextual environments in which there are expectations and these are radically changing. Mm -hmm. And just like in the music industry and other places, these are going to be hard changes and a lot of vested interests. Yeah. You know, and, and again, it's probably easy to, to, to good guy, bad guy kind of stuff. This felt a little obvious. <laughs> Right. I mean, the, the defense was that we were opposing government mandates, but the mandate being that you have to have your research, whatever you get government funded for has to be open. Open. Right. So the opposition to that, uh, and I mean, that's a little bit of a patriotic misdirect, right? Yes. But uh, I was glad to see that that had yeah. been, been pulled. Uh, what's up with the No Child Left Behind waivers? Is every state now <laughs> submitted for a waiver? Well, uh, 26 more states submitted this week. 11 have already received them. So I started to list. I started to list the ones that sort of hadn't uh, hadn't applied yet. But I think that I mean I think it seems as though most of the states are going to try to opt out of, like we talked about before, opt out of the Bush era. Um, notion of assessment for the Obama era. So. <laughs> okay. Uh, the National Association of College Stores is no longer challenging Amazon's claim that students can save up to 90% on their textbooks. Yes. Wow. <laughs> so Amazon was telling the truth. Go figure. They said yeah. that they looked at the calculations and indeed, indeed students you do save up to 90% when you buy your books at Amazon.com as opposed to your campus bookstore. I mean, circling back to Rafter, I mean, I think that, you know, part of the problem, particularly for, for many schools that aren't part of a system, is that they, you know, I think that there are, they're not getting the discounts that Amazon is getting, right? Because, I mean, Amazon buys so many books. Amazon, Amazon gets a huge deal from the publishers. but. Then they're sort of marking it up on top of that, and so yeah, I mean it's a better deal to buy your textbooks. I took. Uh, have I told the story of taking the train ride from Salt Lake City to California and passing through the area where they made ice uh -huh. for for decades that got put on trains, and then all of a sudden refrigeration comes along, and the people who are making ice just can't, you know, it's not a living anymore. It feels like we're living through a period of time like that. Amazon has its positives and negatives. Right. I mean, there's no question that there are, you know, there are very real issues there. But one of the things I really appreciate about Amazon is their willingness to kind of break the rules to go towards common sense. Mm -hmm. and, and, and they've continued to do that over and over again in ways that are really positive. And I, you know, it's, uh, the downside is watching Borders and maybe Barnes & Noble you know, have and trouble. And local campus bookstore. I mean, right. or their local, so the, their local, locally owned competitor down the street that didn't, doesn't get to sell the... I know, it's a really <laughs> mixed bag. But I will say that uh, uh, Amazon's willingness to advertise used books mm -hmm. is a fascinating shift in our perspective on how you actually do something in a commercial right. venture. And I, I probably buy a third of my books now used because of the dollar savings. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. 
Okay, so um, Rapid City Area School District, where I have been, <laughs> um, this is just a proposed restriction on social media contact between students and teachers. Yeah, this is echoing the, I think, Missouri uh, most famously the had, Facebook. had a, you know, a ban, a really a, sort of a blanket, or worded so that it appeared to be a blanket ban on any social media contact between teachers and students. Um, Rapid City um, has passed this, but I think that there's been such a you know, vocal opposition um, that now the attorneys are looking at it. Um, they were adding the additional piece that you couldn't actually even email a student without CCing another. Had to be a group email, had right? Had to be a group email or have some sort of school official be CC'd on an email. So this is just a, one of those places where we're negotiating mm -hmm. socially a complete new landscape. Um, and, uh, and, the, and the fear side of that would be, right, inappropriate contact. You know, the story you hear right. of the teacher who moves in with the student. I mean, of course, I think this happened yesterday and it's national news, but it's probably one out of, you know, some millions right. of cases, but it becomes visible. On the other side, you would want your teachers to have enough of an interest in the students. Yes. And we just don't know how to negotiate that because the, the barriers that had kind of evolved over time right. have eroded. So we haven't figured out yet sort of the new landscape. Yeah, I mean, and I think, I mean, I think that, you know, that there's, I mean, teachers do have, um, you know, contact, contact. I mean, teachers are sort of the first line of other, of, of important, important kinds of contact with students that, you know, you hate to see these, Avenues get closed down when students when students need help, and if an, if an adult is there, if a teacher is their trusted adult, to sort of have these rules to make someone not be able to, to turn to to a trusted adult because they have to have someone else cc'd on a message is really. I guess what I worry a little bit about is the degree to which those kinds of initiatives are driven by. Um, sort of uh, publicly visible moments and, and, and are they actually real issues where you would want to address them or are they, do they kind of become an easy place for um, visibility on a political level um, without really actually helping anything? Yeah, and I, th I mean, I think part of this too is there's still, and I think we have to remember this even if we're sort of avid social media users, that there still are, you know, even though almost everyone on the planet has a Facebook account now, but there really are still people who have not sort of made the leap to social, really don't understand why you'd want to communicate in these new platforms with, with your peers and your friends and your family, let alone, let alone a student. Interesting. Okay, uh, K-12 gets the second hit, right? <laughs> First is the New York Times article, now it's the class action lawsuit. Yeah, this is, um, I think that this is a, this is an, this other interesting side effect of what happens when this is a publicly traded company, right? So um, uh, they're also an online, they're a provider for online education, um, as the name would suggest, at the K-12 level. There was a scathing piece in the New York Times last year about sort of the failure to have positive educational outcomes. Are these schools, are these, are, are, excuse me, is K-12 sort of predatory in a similar way in which we've sort of recognize that some of the practices around the for-profits at the higher ed are, are predatory. Um, and now there's a class action lawsuit charging, charging just, just this thing. And it's interesting to think about sort of the issues that, you know, we've dealt with in terms of University of Phoenix and the like. What does this mean now when we're seeing this, um, the, the for-profit world really go after K-12? And it's not just, I mean, I don't just mean in terms of online learning. I, we're seeing all sorts of power players Oh, we can talk about Blackboard. Where is the Blackboard? I'm no longer. <laughs> Power players like Blackboard also recognizing that the that the higher ed market might not might might no longer be sufficient. So let's make a play for K-12. So I had mixed feelings about this. One of which is there's a little bit of a double standard here. I mean, schools can get students, get them for the daily allowance. I mean, there's a there's a lot that mm -hmm. goes on at schools that we would not say is necessarily positive. At the same time. It is intriguing because the moment you go to a for-profit model, I, this hadn't occurred to me that somebody could say, well, you're no longer a public institution, so if I don't get what I want, I'm going to sue. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and that there are, you know, sort of, instead of just the sort of um, citizen stakeholders, there are 
stockholders too that actually this isn't just like out this isn't again this is where it gets complicated. It's not outcomes for students, it's outcomes for stockholders and are those do you know when do when do those outcomes you know, when do those sort of desires for outcome coincide and when are they actually at odds with one another? So this is a pretty bad time to be asking that question because I think what we've seen in the last several years is uh, the degree to which those financially driven outcomes end so poorly that it's hard to see a good ending to this story. Well, I think that's what makes it the right time to ask right. that question. <laughs> I mean, particularly as we're seeing, you know, one of the things I, I think we're seeing is um, when the public sector dwindling, you know, dwindling resources for the public sector and private industry stepping up for, you know, and not all, I don't always mean for for bad, stepping up to sort of fill the gaps. What is sort of what is what is the outcome? Um, what about the? I mean, so you're going to have mission driven, and yeah. I'm sure K-12 is mission driven. I mean, I, I mean, I've got to believe that there are people who really care, who are trying to do the best they can. Does it make any sense to consider the, um, the 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 alternate form of a corporation, which is a social a social good corporation, for these kinds of ventures? I mean, are we going to? Do you think it's likely we're going to see companies who will say, uh, we're not going to we're going to go into this alternate form so that we're not as responsible to our shareholders? Are they traded publicly though? I mean, I, you know, I need to learn more about that. I think that. That, I think <coughs> that that's part of the. I mean, it, which isn't to say they, they couldn't be, but currently have, you know, have, currently the stock market isn't something that we think of as a social good in which we all invest in, so we have our, you know, we can actually have our say at a stockholder meeting and say. I'll do my homework next time. <laughs> okay. Okay, uh, Raspberry Pi has launched. Yes, Raspberry Pi has launched. I, I mean, I'm, um, I'm really excited about, about Raspberry Pi. This is a $35 Linux computer the size of, the size of a credit card. Um, and this, I mean, I chose this as one of my favorite startups from last year because I think that this is, um, you know, here we are again talking about things that we've seen this week. But this is a really powerful opportunity for kids to sort of make make computers, and I don't mean make software, but I mean make a computer. Um, and they finally they finally launched, and they, people are so excited about it that their servers all crashed and their That was great news. Yeah, the, the best. <laughs> Not part for them, but. Yeah, but I, I, I'm lined up to talk with the, um, one of the founders of, of Raspberry Pi in a couple of weeks, too. So. Uh, announced uh, the MacArthur launch of Connected Learning, which um, I haven't really looked at yet. Have you looked at it at all? I haven't looked at it in too much detail, but I, like, I very much think that this is one of the things that um, I think social, you know, social media and social networks afford us is this really this moment where we can tie together a student's sort of whole world. It's not just what they're, I mean, it's not just what they should be doing in school or what they are doing in school, what their interests are, and this online, sort of their online world too. So how can we, how can we sort of, well, as the name suggests, how we sort of connect all of these ways in which students are motivated to learn and learning and make it sort of fit into both their academic careers and, and their sort of, their on and offline um, their on, on and offline passion. I'm really interested in this because, in part, big picture schools that I've fallen in love with since interviewing Dennis Lipke, they don't really do this. Mm -hmm. And my question is, do uh, do we need to be doing this? And to to what degree do we need to be making these connections? And to what degree, in a really self-directed learning environment, does this happen on its own? And I just don't know yet. I mean, I think that I think the pieces of it happen. I mean, I would say that you know, if a kid has a passion for Anything really, they probably are often learning it on their own, and more and more these days they probably are doing it online. So, but I think the trick now is how can we, how can we sort of bring that back into the classroom, and in terms of also in terms of sort of that that student being a teacher to the school as well. So they're not, they're sort of a learner in these other environments, and then how can they be back part of their school community um, and offer you know, offer their expertise there. Another bright light for me was this MIT OpenCourseWare partnership with Flat World Knowledge. Yes. Th this seemed to me to be brilliant in part because anywhere that people are creating open textbooks for one purpose, they're likely to get used by others. Yeah, I think Flat World Knowledge is um, one of the probably most interesting 
textbook publishing companies out there, partially because I think that they understand this mix and match, remix, openly licensed um, model, re recognizing two different sort of ways in which it can be delivered, um, whether in print or online. Um, but so they're teaming up with OpenCourseWare to actually sort of make some remi remixed textbooks for the OpenCourseWare Scholar classes, which again is sort of really seeing MIT really build out those open courseware scholar classes so that they are much more than just, frankly, the collection of PDFs and maybe some videos that, you know, that um, open courseware has been for the past decade. Yeah, loved it. Um, is it pronounced Tudor? Yes. So Tudor or you. <laughs> they did. <laughs> they did. I, 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 I get I get a lot of emails from um, random spammy sites saying we'll pay you for a link on your blog. I'm sure most, most anyone who has a blog has received at least one in their lifetime. They'll pay you for a link on your blog. But never did I expect to receive one from what is to this day still the best funded education startup um, offering me $30 for uh, every person that I referred to their uh, Every person you referred to, they actually clicked through. No, 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 no. I'm sure, like, sign up for sign right. up for their masters of teaching. And I was thirty dollars. I would do that. <laughs> <laughs> the heck with morals. Click, click. Okay, so uh, they got a gushing review by TechCrunch okay. that also bothered you. Well, I mean, I just think, you know, I think be a little bit more critical. I think, you know, this is. Uh, I mean, I think that there's a lot of things to sort of poke at instead of sort of just gushing that someone launched an Android app is really so what? <laughs> okay. Um, more on the war against libraries and e-books. What is going on? Yeah. So Random House today released their new price. I mean, this was sort of new. This was coming. But Random House released its new pricing today for um, libraries purchasing their titles and the 300% uh, increase in some cases for a digital, a digital title over uh, the, the previous catalogs. Which in some cases would mean that a book would be $60 to $70. Right, for, a, for the equivalent of a hardcover book. The libraries are being charged upwards of. So is this a battle? <laughs> uh, a battle between libraries and publishers? Or yeah, I mean, is there is there a little bit of a, uh, a skirmish or war going on here in terms of who controls? And um, I mean, is is this a legitimate concern that they're going to be losing enough sales that they need to justify an increasing cost for for a book that's going to get loaned out? Why why would that not be the case for a hardcover book that a library would have? I I think that the I mean the argument that the publishers have made, and this is the argument that um, Harper Collins made when they made the checkouts. You can only check out a book 26, an ebook 26 times before the library has to buy a new license. So the argument is, um, you know, a physical book has a shelf life of, you know, I mean, it depends if it's a, a hardcover versus a, a paperback. But there are only so many times you can check out a book before it has to be retaped, the spine has to be retaped, or pages are torn. But you know, with good with good care, it's actually a lot of checkouts, um, and so, but it seems as though the fear, uh, again, the fear of digital material that the publishers are putting some pretty hefty either restrictions on the number of checkouts, or, or just making the price so high, I guess that that the that libraries would opt to to purchase the physical copy, which I guess Random House still would prefer them to do. Well, in the case of the uh, iPad textbooks. It may actually make sense to buy the physical copy, right? <laughs> yes. I love it when people sort of crunch the numbers and the the uh, the promise of the 14.99 uh, iTextbook that that Apple touted for its tech for its edit education event um, is clearly not such a great deal. And I think most of us sort of figured it was probably not such a great deal. Um, but it looks as though it's actually far more expensive to take to take the iTextbook route than it is to buy those those print textbooks that were sort of, we, you know, I think we all agree that they're outrageously expensive, but 
um, iPad textbooks are even more outrageously expensive. So shall we say it again just for old time's sake? Fire your textbook. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, what did we learn about Gates Foundation um, disbursements that came from the Shanker blog? This is really, I mean, this is something that I've been curious about for a long time because at almost every education event I attend or um, initiative I hear about, it's funded by the Gates Foundation. So, I mean, I don't remember the number today. Uh, one of the panelists was from the Gates Foundation. And there's just, they're sizable. I mean, the, the, the whole sort of philanthropic endeavor is vast. And the sizable portion of that does go to education. But it was interesting to see the breakdown of what, um, where, the, where that money went um, and where it's gone in the past versus where it's going now. One of the interesting things in the, um, in the blog post was you could clearly see that the Small Schools Initiative, which was, of course, Bill Gates' first move into education philanthropy with his push for small schools, um, that they've sort of backed out of that almost entirely. Um, and the new focus seems to be very much funding the Common Core. So big picture schools is probably not going to get additional support from Gates. Darn. Um, community college remedial classes. This is a little bit of a different take. Yeah, this is, I mean, this is something that I think is, you know, we've been hearing a lot about uh, sort of students coming to college and they're not ready for college. Um, and in, in some ways, not to be simpler, but colleges sort of love that, right? Because you get to sort of charge people an addition, additional year or two of tuition for class for remedial classes that get them ready for, quote, the real classes of college. Um, but um, a study that was published in the New York Times said that actually these uh, placement tests that we're often giving college students are too often putting them in remedial classes. And chances are if we looked at their GPA, and perhaps look at their GPA next to placement tests, that they would do just fine in these entry, in the, you know, in sort of the, introductory classes. Because far too often we are sticking students in remedial classes who don't, who don't need to be there. Interesting. That was surprising. Yeah. Um, okay, more students of higher income are going to community college. This didn't actually surprise me. This doesn't surprise me either. I mean, particularly when you look at the, I mean, for a number of reasons. I think partially just the overall cost of the overall cost of a university degree, the sort of recognition that no matter sort of in many cases where you go, you're ended up you end up sort of taking general ed requirements for your first two years um, anyway. So the fact that we're seeing sort of more higher income students in community colleges, on one hand, it's not surprising, but on the other hand, I think it is it's an interesting shift. If it, if will it change will it change the sort of education that a community college delivers, which is I would say somewhat still focus on an adult education as opposed to educating 19-year-olds. I mean, of course, they would love us to think that they're adults, but as a mother <laughs> of a 19-year-old, some days they are. But it'll be, you know, I have to think about this. So what, how will this change what happens at community colleges? Will they have to start offering some of these other things that a, that a four-year college does offer in terms of, you know, I mean, I don't just mean in terms of academics. Um, but just in terms of social connections and um, other sort of on-campus opportunities. The community college is often not a campus in the same way that you think of a university campus. Don Knezic steps down as, is stepping down is as stepping CEO down. of ISTE. Yeah, and Don's been the CEO of ISTE for a long time. Ten years, I think. Yeah. Do we have any sense of uh, who's going to replace him? I don't know. There's, there's a, there a I think there's, there'll be a search, um, but he'll, he's stepping down as of September, which is a fairly sort of short, uh, sort of a, a sort of short notice. It's sort of my sense of things on, hmm. on the sort of change, changing of the guard at ISTE. It'll be interesting to see, you know, um, having just talked about ISTE last week, what, what if any change this would bring to, to, to the organization. There can be a lot of reasons someone steps down health, family, mm -hmm. other things. Uh, and I don't know how long the tenure, I mean, ISTE is only a 30-year-old organization, right? Right. So uh, that's a long time to have that been really head of ISTE. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess, uh, you know, best wishes to Don, but also hopes that whoever comes in 
finds a way to have ISTE play a more prominent role in some of the conversations going on. Yeah, I would, I, I would hope so too. Um, okay, there's this little squinty face that keeps coming up here. Every, there's something that gets mentioned here at this conference, the email conference, and every time it does, there are all these little sort of squinty, uh, quizzical looks that go around the room. And this is the DML badge competition. Yes. Uh, which we're trying to figure out why it's a competition. Well, the, well, I should say the, DM, the DML does have a competition every year, a research competition, and this year the competition was um, to design badges for lifelong learning. So it's, I mean, it's a sort of a higher ed oriented um, event. This is sort of in the grand tradition of the way, you, the way in which you compete for grant money. So it's sort of a, uh, it's a competition for grant money from the MacArthur Foundation under well, Halfback and, and the MacArthur Foundation. So. Well, so lots of news there. Yeah, and the ba you know, this, it has been interesting as the badges, the, to, to hear people's um, reception to, to the badges and I think um, concerns, concerns about what badges, what badges will do, what badges won't do, will they change things, won't they change things, will they destroy sort of motivation, will they, will they upend, um, certification and accreditation. Been down that road. We have been down that road. <laughs> uh, Seth Godin uh, writes a new manifesto. Is this just the same old thing but a new mouthpiece? Um, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I know a lot of people are really excited about soft stealing dreams and I don't think he's, I mean, I, I can't really sort of take issue with much that he says there, but I don't feel like he's actually saying anything that the rest of us haven't been saying for quite some time, um, and I think that in some ways it's. Um, I, I mean, and I don't know. I don't know. Sort of, do we do we need a person like what? And what does it mean if we do need a person like Seth Godin to make these sorts of to write our manifesto? I mean, I think that that seems he's a marketing guy. Do we, do we need a marketing guy to write our manifesto? I appreciate that he's interested in the topic. I appreciate that he's done some homework you know, that he's dug a little deeper than most do. Um, but it, it, for me, it kind of made me realize the degree to which the, that conversation exists at a level that doesn't really have an impact on the system as a whole. And, and so it wasn't really Seth's work as much as it was sort of the one more straw of somebody in his position kind of coming out and screaming about it for me to say, you know, gosh, I really don't know that this actually changes things. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I just, I have a hard time imagining sort of folks who would pick up and read Seth Godin in general who aren't already sort of thinking about these things. Like, I mean, I would say, like, when you, a manifesto is supposedly to sort of be like a, a stake in the ground that people are going to sort of find shocking. And, I mean, this is sort of my background, so it's an avant-garde literature, but like a manifesto is, is sort of politically and aesthetically, it's 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 shocking, and I don't think what he's saying is. I mean, perhaps it is in other circles, but I, I just can't imagine sort of who he's going to be shocking with with that. I have a hard time imagining my regular neighbors reading that and saying, "Oh, I'm really interested in changing schools." That's that's the piece I think we're missing. We don't have a narrative that really bridges all of the economic and cultural divide where yeah. people say, "Gosh, I really think we need to make a change here." Right. Um, teacher data reports. Okay. Uh, did, we, did we talk about this last week? I, I did. Remember, we did. Yeah. Right. I mean, I think that this is, you know, I, I think that just this week that to, to follow up the New York, the New York City Schools released their um, data about with teachers' names and their rankings based on the value-added assessment of, of some 18,000 school teachers in the city. The New York Times ran a story, maybe the Times or the Post, they ran a story on the worst teacher in the city. And I think that's just this, uh, I mean, uh, and the Schenker blog has a thing called the reign of error, and I think it's a, it's a pretty deliberate, you know, play on words, because it, to, to have a story about the worst teacher, um, based on based on this really faulty sort of model, uh, is I think speaks to this larger culture that we're in right now. That is, it's I mean, 
it's so depressing to please read Deming. <laughs> <laughs> please read Deming. So um, what I found really interesting for me was that uh, it should come as no surprise to us that uh, Chris Lehman had, had blogged on this and he'd said, that, you know, what makes us think that we can bully teachers into caring about students? And I thought, well, you could really easily shift that sentence to, to say, what makes us think that we could bully students to care about learning? It, there's, it's such a parallel world that it really should be no surprise to us that we would consider this acceptable behavior because in large part this is how we treat students. Right. And I, I mean, and I think it was someone from the Gates Foundation that did say today that students should rise up. No, I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's quite what she said. But she did say that students should speak out. Speak out, but don't rise but up. But don't opt out. But don't opt out. Right. Okay, and uh, and then you have a connection. To, you have a link to the Pew survey. Yeah, this is an interesting. They actually, this is sort of a different survey than what they often do. But they asked, uh, I think, almost a thousand sort of different luminaries in education, so what they think the future future holds for millennials in terms of the internet. And it's sort of one of those conclusions that really irks me is that sort of well, it's going to be good and it's going to be bad. Shocking. Go figure. Yeah. <laughs> um, and finally, a manifesto for teaching online. Yes, this is um, you know. Thinking about sort of what does it mean? What does it mean? Sort of how will our practices change um, when when we we teach online? And, and when we I think you know even if it's sort of a course is online, what does that what does it mean? In sort of sort of being being uh, being a teacher and I would add to that a learner. But this was a this is a clue train manifesto kind of a manifesto. Mm -hmm. There's some depth to these yes. uh, bullet points. Yeah. Worth looking at. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so too. Okay, everybody, have a great week. Thanks, Audrey. You're <laughs> terrific. <laughs> Thanks Fun to be Steve. with you in person. <laughs> exactly. Bye. Bye.